Graphic Nature acknowledges the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional custodians of the land on which we record the show and pay our respects to the Elders past, present and future and extend that respect to other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening to this podcast. Please be advised, the following episode contains mature themes with respect to mental health, eating disorders, domestic abuse and post-traumatic stress disorder. I would encourage anybody who's, who may well be triggered by anything that, uh, that they hear on, on this episode, please call Lifeline on 131114 or any like-minded association or organisation in your local area or visit their, their website on www.lifeline.org.au. Due to the graphic nature of this program, Listener discretion is advised. Fighting for what's right, for justice, that's what a hero does. It is my opinion, without any reasonable doubt and without any reservation, that comic books are an important contributing factor in many cases of juvenile delinquency. Comic books are pure evil. Satan himself condemns our children to the fiery depths of hell. A particular tale can come to life in the mind of a reader. It is endlessly fascinating to me. We have found that all comic books have a very bad effect on teaching the youngest children the proper reading techniques. This balloon print pattern prevents them. I am not a villain. I am a victim. A victim of a society that tortured me. Vengeance will be mine. Will be mine. Welcome to Graphic Nature, a fortnightly podcast exploring the inspiring world of comic books, the culture that supports it, the creators, publishers and people behind the printed pages and digital screens pushing the medium on into the future in Australia and the world. I'm Zoran Ilyevsky. Uh, on this episode, we talk to Kale McHurst, creator and writer of I Do Not Have an Eating Disorder and No, She's Not My Sister. Kale, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. You've been doing comics for how many years now? Maybe about eight or nine years. All right, so eight or nine years. And, and how was your story? <laughs> My origin story. Your origin story. Um, so I was never – I always read comics. I've always enjoyed reading comics and um, gotten a lot from them. I was never a comic artist. I was always an illustrator. I used to do quite large paintings and, you know, big watercolour and ink paintings and that was what I did and I just illustrated and had a website and put things on the internet and that's what I was known for. And then when I was 24, I was diagnosed with anorexia nervosa and I was very, very unwell. I was very malnourished and part of the treatment for my anorexia and of course associated mental illness was to go on um, antidepressants which um, I hadn't really been on seriously before. Now something that happens with antidepressants to some people not to everyone but it's something that is known that can happen with antidepressants is they really dull you creatively so I found myself in this incredible feeling uh, this this time where I was going through a lot emotionally because I'd just been diagnosed and I was coming to terms with the fact that I had a mental illness and had to do a whole bunch of weight recovery and had to do a whole bunch of therapy and visiting dietitians and doctors and psychiatrists. And I, so I was having all of these incredible feelings. And yet when I would sit down in front of a piece of paper to illustrate like I used to do, nothing would come out. I would just sit there and I had no ideas and I couldn't move my hand and I just, I couldn't draw. And I was so distressed for months I was incredibly distressed because I just stopped drawing and I was used to creating you know for hours every night I would just draw and paint 
And so I didn't know what to do with all of these feelings that I was having and I couldn't draw. And then I also had this partner at the time who was saying, she's the one who got me into recovery. And I was trying to explain to her what I was feeling and what I was going through with my eating disorder. And I couldn't make myself well understood with my words alone. So I was sort of stuck creatively, but I I needed to be telling this story, at least to her. And so I thought, you know what, I can't do these enormous paintings that I always do. But maybe if I just draw like a really, really small drawing, you know, I had been drawing my whole life. So Mm -hmm. I was like, if I could just draw a really small drawing, then that's something. So I started off by drawing this tiny little one panel drawing. And I was like, okay, well, that wasn't too hard. I managed to draw that small drawing. So maybe if I just draw enough small drawings to fill a page. And then from that, I mean, comics was just a natural fit. You know, I couldn't bring myself to draw these great big epic illustrations, but I could draw a little simple person of someone sitting and talking or a little simple drawing of someone with a voice over their shoulder. And comics became the more accessible form of storytelling and artistic expression that I could reach. I had no training in comics. I didn't know what I was doing. I just had experience reading comics. I was like, okay, I just I started reading more and more comics. I was like, all right, so you do it like this. This is how you make a panel. This is Trial how you by draw. fire. Oh, my gosh, so many mistakes, just the worst. <laughs> um, but I, I just started drawing these pages uh, about just what I was feeling, what I was going through. And I'd never done autobiographical work before mm-hmm. either. But then, you know, I drew some pages and then I showed them to my girlfriend at the time and she was like, okay, that makes a bit more sense to me. I feel like I understand you a bit better now. And so I drew some more. And by the time I had 20 pages, I, after drawing that many pages, I realised that it was really helping me to understand myself. And I named it, I do not have an eating disorder because that's what I was trying to prove when I set out drawing it. I was yeah. saying, these are all the reasons why I don't have an eating disorder and you are wrong. And so I, after I'd drawn 20 pages of it, when I looked back at those pages as the at the thoughts and feelings that I was describing on those pages, I realized, well, hang on a second, maybe there's something to this whole eating disorder business. How can I continue to explore this? Because this is feeling like a kind of art therapy for me and I think yeah. maybe this is really useful. And so I decided that I would start posting it online and I said I'll post one page a week and I figured that would hold me accountable and therefore I'd keep doing it. So yeah. I started posting it online um, and then kept drawing it and really quite surprisingly quite quickly people started picking it up online Mm -hmm. a lot of people that had the same experience that were also suffering from eating disorders and mental illness and I you know every time I posted a page I was so ashamed so deeply ashamed I'm like oh this is just what I feel and it's probably pretty weird and it's I don't know why I think this way but that's just the way my brain works I'm really sorry and then I would get all these people write to me and be like, no, that's how it feels. Like yeah. that is the the tricks that your mind plays on you. That's exactly how it feels. And that was really, really empowering. So from that, I just kept drawing it, uh, kept drawing comics. And I've expanded to do a whole bunch of other comics since then. But that was the one that got me started. Right. And it was absolutely trial by fire. I had no idea what I was doing. Well, it's a pretty heavy comic. Like I, I remember I picked it up for the first time a couple of years ago uh, when we first met. And mm. Uh, reading that was it was it, it was pretty harrowing. Like I haven't read it, reread it in a long time. It is heavy, and, yeah. and and I and I've said it before, and I think it's incredibly brave of anybody, particularly of your mental state at that time, to do something so so. Um, best word I can think of is is uncovered, so so raw, and here it is. This is what I'm going through, mm. and it's and it's not necessarily. Uh, an amazing experience mm. and to put that on show for everybody I think is incredibly brave uh, 
I, there are there are a few other artists that and, and creators that I've seen do it, um, albeit uh, international. But it, it still is a very it's a very confronting thing to to read, mm. uh, particularly from my perspective, someone who's never gone through anything like that. And so I don't understand it intellectually. I understand, but I don't know what it's like. Yeah, and and I can't even imagine what it's like. And um, I commend you for doing it because, like you say, the impact that it has on other people who have gone through similar experiences, it may even lend a hand to them finding their own method of, mm. of you know, figuring out what they need to do to, to, to get better or to get over whatever it is that they need help with. Well, thank you so much for saying that. And what I think has been the most valuable to me, um, I wouldn't have been able to have get it to the point that it's gotten it to if it wasn't for the internet absolutely Mm -hmm. because being able to immediately share it on the internet and have people immediately write back really gave me a lot of encouragement but where i found it's been the most rewarding is i have had quite a few people write to me and say i'm having trouble getting the people in my life to understand what i'm going through so i showed them some of your comics and then they understood what I was going through. And I was like, "That, yeah, that's exactly what I use it for. That's what I drew it for, to explain to my girlfriend what I was going for. And so other people have used it as a teaching tool as well. And I've had a couple of people use it in um, brochures for mental illness as well to show people just how that inner critic feels and how how it feels to go through that experience. So if they can, you know, if these comics can help people to feel better understood, then I think that's you know, the ultimate goal that, that is I'm going for. Yeah, that is absolutely amazing. And interesting that you bring up the inner critic because I would imagine that irrespective of who you are, everybody has one. Yeah. You know, and, and I, I don't think that experience is, you know, is all that rare. Mm. Uh, you know, and, and it's certainly in uh, in my experience, it has it has impacted the decisions that I make. And, and the same for everybody else. I, I can only imagine what it's like for other people, but I know uh, anybody who's in, let's say, a creative field, or even if you're not, even if you're not, it's just a matter of, hey, do I go and speak to that person? Do mm-hmm. I ask them out on a date? You know, And there's already stuff in the back of your brain that is telling you all sorts of things. <laughs> you know, or as in, and, you know, you're laughing, uh, you're hearing you laugh. is You know exactly what it's like. I um, feel of like course. we've all had one of those nights where you're lying in bed and you can't get to sleep and then your brain is like, I've got a great idea. We should think about every bad thing that you've ever said and done, every stupid thing you've ever said in your life. Let's think about those right now, oh. tonight. And you just lay awake all night. Like, why? Why, brain? Do we have to do this again? <laughs> why? Now? <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm glad that... Uh, my, mine tends to happen during the day, so I'm, I'm <laughs> even more distracting. Yeah, well, you know, it's, I'm, I'd much rather that than at night when I'm going to bed. <laughs> um, but uh, but I do know people that that it affects it at in the evening or just right before bed. It's like your your body's just going ha, and then your brain goes, "Hey, <laughs> guess what? Remember the dumb shit you did today? Here you go." Yeah. You know, it's it's pretty full on. But um, but again, uh, putting it uh, in, in a book and and showing people is is remarkable and and i do think it's not only incredibly brave but i do commend you for doing that and for being so so um confident and the moments that i've spoken to you 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 know it's it's amazing to see of course hindsight is a different thing but having gone through all that and having this extra tool for yourself and and more so for other people to understand uh is is unreal i I can't say i don't know if i can say anything more that's going to tell you how much i feel about the the stuff the work that you do i think it's it's remarkable 
Thank you. I really appreciate that. Now, well, you did mention that you've been reading comics for a long time earlier on in the piece. Absolutely. And uh, what kind of what kind of stories do you enjoy uh, to to escape? So I think. I am drawn to a lot of autobiographical work because I find people's vulnerabilities fascinating. And mm-hmm. I, in real life, I find that as well. You know, when I, if I go to a party and everyone's in one room dancing, I'll be like, is there a room where me and maybe one other person can have a deep and meaningful, and that's the most rewarding experience I can have at a party. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I love talking to people about the, the things that deeply affect us and the things that we have in common. And so those are the stories that I'm really drawn to. I, I love people's stories about, you know, their their daily lives. I love stories about the, the hardships that people have been through. I love queer stories naturally because, you know, when I first started reading comics in the pre-internet days, there was no such thing as queer comics. It just... It, that didn't exist, yeah. and then the internet happened, and then all of well, these not not like it did, to, not like it does today. Yeah, yeah, all these little comic creators that are like, actually, I want to tell my story, mm. and then they started telling stories about LGBTIQA characters, and the internet was a tool that I could access, and so I started finding them, and it was very inspiring. I was like, wait a minute, maybe maybe we can make comics even if we're gay. That's we can do that. And now, I mean, it's hard to imagine. Now you look at it, and there are so many queer comics. They're just everywhere. But you know, back as a teenager, when the only thing that I could access was what you could get at Minotaur and Burke Street. You know, mm-hmm. that's that's the only comics you can get. Or you know, I started uh, the first comics I ever bought when I was a, a young teenager and had my very own money to spend. You could get. Uh, volumes of manga and they were like manga that was already 20 years old yeah and it cost like 45 dollars a book and the books weren't even that thick but you'd save up your pennies and you'd go in each each month and you'd be like yes i'm gonna get a new volume of manga it would take you a very short time to read it was such a significant investment to get these comics but that's that was the cost of comics back then and Mm -hmm. i look at how much you know, when I go to buy a comic now, if if I was if I read a lot of manga now, like most of them are price pointed at about twenty bucks. Yeah. But like forty five dollars will buy me a really nice, beautiful hardcover graphic novel that's a delight to read. It's just such a different experience now. Yeah. It's so much more accessible. So, I think I started off reading uh, manga as a teenager, and then when the internet came along, you know, you started getting things like Daily Comics Day, uh, Hourly Comics Day and um, 24-Hour Comic Challenge and things like that. And it was particularly those ones where people were writing comics about their lives that I was like, yeah, I just, I I dig that. And so I just started exploring who all the autobiographical comic artists now. So now I read a lot of uh, female and non-binary authors Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of autobiographical stuff because people have got great stories to tell, you know, just fascinating. All kinds of ridiculous stuff has happened to people. Yeah, for me, those types of stories, uh, much like yourself, for me, my life has been pretty fucking bland. It's pretty ordinary, <laughs> right? And, and, I, and, and I will, to my dying day, say that I am extremely lucky. It, from the perspective of I grew up in a loving family. Uh, my friends were all, you know, were all great. Uh, I've worked in some really great places. Uh, I've never had any kind of personal demon I look back and I go, you know, nothing really. I'm not really all that interesting, <laughs> you know. And so when I when I look at, you know, I mean, that sounds kind of <laughs> bad. So sad. And no, it's not sad at all. No, no, you're looking at no, no, no. That's not what I mean. It's you know, in in the, in the general sense of a, a good storyteller, I find, 
or, or someone who has good stories, in fact, has has gone through a, some sort of evolution, has gone through something that has tested them. You know, n- I naturally gravitate towards those types of stories where mm. somebody has been dealing with traumatic event or, or someone has been dealing with something or they've been dealing with someone or, or you know, that kind of autobiographical kind of, kind of stories. They're, they're really the ones that, you know, I enjoy because it's like, wow, I never knew that. Mm. Or wow, that's quite, that's amazing. Uh, and, and I often cite, and I probably already have, um, Katie Green's uh, Lighter Than My Shadow. Yeah. It had an amazing way of explaining what she went through and the process for her basically saying this is how i Mm. went through it and it was for lack of a better word it was so sad to know that someone has gone through that and so reading reading your book reading katie green's book reading some stuff from craig thompson um all these all all these types of stories are are heartbreaking Mm. and and in some cases they're not really all that resolved yeah. You know, and and it's and it's all it, or it's it's something that the author will be living on with for quite some time because shit like that doesn't get dealt with once you finish yeah. the book. And yeah. I think that's why comics are such an incredible medium for autobiographical mm. artists because they give you the the tools. I mean, I, one thing that I find so engaging about autobiographical stories is that people really put their guts into them. Yeah, it's like so when amazing it's, when it's something that's happened to you personally and you're like, I need to feel understood then you put your best work and all of your visceral, just the depths of it into it. And people really produce some incredible stuff. I love the imagery that people come up with. You know, the, the comics you might think is a pretty set medium, but people come up with the most creative ways, metaphors to tell their story yeah. through their comics. So in uh, Lighter Than My Shadow, Katie draws when she her eating disorder uh, changes form. So something that quite... Ha- often happens in recovery is you start off with one kind of disordered eating behavior and you transition into another disordered eating behavior and I was reading that um, comic when I was at the later end of my recovery and she talked about how she had all of these starvation behaviors Mm -hmm. and then she drew herself as suddenly having this enormous monster in her stomach that was just craving all the food she could put into herself and it was this big hole with teeth in the middle of her stomach that was just empty and bellowing for food and she then just had to binge and binge and binge to feed this hole in her stomach. Yeah. And I was reading that and I was like, oh, my gosh, that's exactly how it feels when you go from starving yourself to binging. Yeah. You just There's this enormous hole inside you and you stuff everything that you can think of into it and to the point where you make yourself completely sick. But you just it's coming from so deep inside you. It's coming from in your guts. And there's this overwhelming feeling that d- defies words in your brain that just is like, you've got to put food in me now. You've got to do it. Just eat it. Eat it now. Eat it now. Get mm-hmm. it in. Oh, it's, But she illustrated that with very simple drawings. And I thought that was so incredibly effective. Absolutely. You just describing reminded me as such a simple such a simple idea such a simple drawing but so so very visceral mm. and just thinking about it and going it's it's mind-blowing just how well yeah it worked particularly in her book i remember seeing it for the first time going well, that's a pretty thick book wow yeah. it's lighter than my shadow that looks really interesting i'm gonna i knew nothing about it yeah and i bought it and i read it and it's one of my favorite books I, I knew nothing about it when I found it. I stumbled across it in a bookstore and I always get excited when I see a really big graphic novel because I'm like, oh, this is going to go on a journey. Yeah. Um, and then I had to flick through it and I was like, holy shit, this is about an eating disorder. <laughs> there are more. Yeah. I was very excited. and It was very, very good.
So I was delighted to pick it up. It was a great read. Was there anything else that, you know, do you pepper your reading with uh, other kind of stuff? Maybe something a bit lighter? <sighs> what is some lighter stuff that I'm reading these days? Uh, I've been reading a lot by Tilly Walden, mm-hmm. um, which is just, oh, the illustrations are just incredibly gorgeous. And Tilly has found their voice very, very early in the game um, and just produces the most incredibly beautiful, poignant work. It's um, It's... It's so simple and in some ways so adolescent and it makes me nostalgic in that way because it it is so teenage and I think we all remember being teenagers and at that time, you know, every experience was new and every feeling felt so big. It just took over your entire body. So she's got this page in one of her books where, you know, one of them is they're sharing earphones because they're like, "I, I heard this song and I thought of you and I was like oh gosh, I remember being a teenager and someone saying this song make me thought of you, you'd make him a mixtape and it was just <laughs> overwhelming. And, you know, I suppose, you know, as adults would become jaded to that kind of stuff. But when you're young, like, it I mean, mean it means so much. Showing my age now, but, you know, sitting there, like listening to the radio, waiting for that song to come on so you could record it onto cassette and try and get most of the ads out so that you could give the person the mixtape that you made. That sounds like, like my childhood. What are you talking about? <laughs> Showing your age? Come on. <laughs> oh, yeah, good times. Good times. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I've, I've been – look, uh, something – a really fun romp that I read recently is um, The Prince and the Dressmaker by mm-hmm. Jen Wang, which was um, just fantastic and I hope it wins a whole bunch of awards. Um, so it is about a prince – who is exploring their gender identity and feels like they might like to dress like a lady. And uh, they then employ a dressmaker to make them costumes privately and then they start going out wearing these costumes. And then it, it, it explores the relationship between the two because po- the problem is that the dressmaker who's making these costumes is suddenly getting all of this recognition for their incredible work because it's being seen in public places. But she cannot acknowledge her work publicly and who she is without outing the prince. And so it's it's quite complicated. It explores a lot of different themes, a little bit queer, which is fun, but um, incredible art and just a really fun story and I think a really appropriate all-ages story as well. It's really enjoyable. Yeah, right. And, yeah. and, and, and uh, along with all the stuff that you've been reading recently, what was, what was, the, uh, what was, your f- what was the th- book that you read the, earl- the earliest like what were your earliest memories did you well, did you get into comics later on you said you read you read a lot of comics in your teens was it mainly just manga or um yeah i, I started off when i was a you know, teenager i was reading manga i then started finding um more indie comics kind of stuff and i've never been a, a big marvel or dc mm-hmm. person i i could never really get on board yeah. um but i very early on i picked up strangers in paradise and great book oh Oh my gosh, what a journey. Uh, and I, I just bought one volume. I think it was on sale and I was like, oh, I guess I'll get this. And then it was just, oh my gosh, it was incredible. And I immediately went out and bought the whole thing and read it and then was reduced to absolute tears with extreme joy at the end of this beautiful comic. Um, and I was so just incredibly moved. And I was like, oh, there must be more comics like this. Um, and so then I just started frequenting comic stores yeah. more. And uh, I quickly found where all the comic stores were in Melbourne and uh, started looking for, you know, more stories that were in a a similar vibe. I look for stories with women on the cover, of course, um, because I find those stories, you know, generally much more relatable. And um, 
it really helped me as well. My comic collecting really expanded a lot um, when my sister started dating, dating her partner around the same time that I started drawing comics. And he is a big comics buff. And he's, yeah, right. he knows all the stuff. Um, and so every now and then she'd be like, give this a read. I reckon you might like it. Oh, nice. Um, and steered me onto some really good ones. That's how I found Sweet Tooth, which was uh, oh. Jeff Lemire, yeah. also reduced me to tears. So beautiful. Loved it. Um, but so, you know, I think I've mainly read sort of the more classic mainstream ones rather yeah. than a lot of the, the superhero kind of stuff. Um, I just, I, I like character driven stories. I love, I love getting punched in the feels. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to have big feelings when I read comics and those, those are the stories that I'm really drawn to. So when they go on a journey, when they overcome uh, an obstacle and when, you know, someone dies, but ultimately everyone's happy at the end. Oh, just, yeah. <laughs> I love to cry in a comic. I'm a big crier, so. Terry Moore is probably one of the few dudes that can actually write women. Yes. N- and, and, I mean, well, not the best. It's No, it's a weird experience, though, as a woman. Like, I remember when I was reading, not a comic, when I was reading The Hours by Michael Cunningham, and I read this book, and I didn't really look at the cover, but I was just reading it, and I was like, oh, my God the window into my brain and then when I looked at the cover of the book and realized I was sort of a third of the way in and looked at the cover and it was like it's written by a man how dare he and I felt so betrayed that this author had however he came upon it had somehow stumbled upon the very intimate feelings of what it was like to be a woman and I felt so betrayed by that and I felt similarly betrayed by Terry Moore like I loved it devoured it but I was like how dare you Know my private women's thoughts. You obviously must have some very good skills in your life that you have learned that this is how it feels to be. He can write from so many different voices, mm. you know, which I found quite exceptional. Um, and once I sort of forgave him for betraying my woman's brain, um, I really, really enjoyed the comics. Do you think though that it might well be that? Uh, I mean, most of the m- most of these guys would have editors. And yeah. is it possible that they have a female editor that says, no, no woman's ever going to say that? That sounds ridiculous. I mean, I think you can tell a comic that's written by a man where no women have been involved. Like someone, a, a guy recommended me, he's like, go out and read Rat Queens. It's so great. It's got so many girls. And I was like, all right. And I read volume one of Rat Queens and I was like, mm, this is these women are written by men. Like these do not sound like women. These sounds like sexy pinups that, you know, men wish that women would be ah yes i'm so sexy and empowered because i love to have sex with everyone Woo! i'm like no women that are really empowered about their bodies don't talk like this no there's something very empowering about having sex with whoever you want to but that's they didn't sound like women that i would meet i was like this that's a lot of a lot of men in i gave up on rat queens pretty early Yeah. yeah yeah It was, a, it was a good concept. It was a good idea. It was a great concept. I was, was very excited to yeah. get really into it. But then I read it and I was like, oh, sounds like men with puppets. <laughs> <laughs> sexy puppets. Very sexy puppets. Very sexy puppets. Sexy empowered puppets. Yeah, I, I, I've said it before that it, you can tell. You can tell yeah. um, when, when – and in some cases probably not, but you can always tell, uh, you can always tell when uh, a woman's writing a woman yeah. and a man's writing a woman. Sometimes it's a little bit blurry, but um, for me anyway. Um, but it is a distinctive voice. But I, 
think that's the mark of, you know, a really great writer when they're able to write from the perspective of someone else and make it believable. Um, then I think that's a genuine skill and I think it's something that you learn mm-hmm. um, through trial and error, certainly, and yeah. through, through doing a lot of writing. Um, so there was a there was a comic not too long ago. I'm not sure if you're aware. It's called Sex Criminals, and it was oh, I love it. yeah. And it was written by Matt Fraction, and a lot of people go, oh, "It's so good, such a good book." And it was. It's a fantastic book. Uh, and reading reading the female characters, the sense I got was, well, "That's a really good depiction of a female <laughs> in a book." And I was like, "Wow, you're doing really well." But then I can't remember when I made connected the dots. But his partner is Callie Sue DeConnick, who is a huge comics writer. Yeah. And I thought to myself, I, now I'm not so certain that Matt is yeah. such a good writer of women. More so, he's written a, a good approximate approximation and yeah. gone, hey, Kelly, read this and what do you and think? And make it sound like a lady. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know how much of a hand she had who in knows? it. But, but you know what? Uh, but I, I, in the back of my mind, I kind of think, yeah. I reckon she's. I reckon she's gone over it and gone. Yeah, maybe just change that and that and that. And that sounds kind of dumb. Change that. But I mean, when I read something like Saga, for example, you know, you read that and you're like, okay, this is a woman that I can believe. She talks like me. She acts like me. Mm. Maybe probably much bolder than I would be. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but um, but but it's believable. Yeah. And then you look at the creative team. You're like, okay, there's enough women on board that all of the characters sound believable to me. When when you're obviously when you're creating. Uh, m- most of it's autobiographical, but do you break down? Do you do it like you mentioned earlier? You you work panel by panel, yeah. Uh, or is that how you do it? You, do you plan forward planning? Now that I have uh, actually been doing this for a while, I've figured out a process to mm-hmm. go through, and I'm and I, everyone's process is unique, and we all figure it out on our own. And probably there's a lot of mistakes in the way I do it. So now that I I guess have kind of built this identity as someone who writes autobiographical comics. I am desperately mining my life for anything that I can make into a comic, which is great and also terrible. Maybe not so great for the people around me, but great for me. So whenever much, much like a like a, a comic, a, a, a comedian. Yep, yep. Um, it's it's a fine balance between like the people that don't want to be put in your comics are the ones that are saying the best stuff. And the people that are saying the really blast stuff are like, oh my gosh, put me in your comic. You know, like you didn't do anything interesting. What do you want me? I'm not going to give you a cameo just so <laughs> that you can be there. You have to do something really interesting. Mm. So, you know, my poor wife who is so blase about being, she's like, that's fine. You can put me in the comics. But she's, she's doing shit all the time. It's great. Fantastic. What a source of entertainment. I wouldn't write any happy comics if it wasn't for her, to be honest. Has, has there been any point where she's been upset about some of the stuff that you've put in there? She's never been upset because any time something's happened where I'm like, oh, what do you reckon? She's like, nah, I'd draw the line. So oh. there is a line. There's oh, that's a veto. Good. That's good. That's yeah. Good. That's good. <laughs> I always – you know, because when I read some of your stuff and, and I go, oh, wow. You know, it, it, don't get me wrong. It's amazing that – that you're you've you're putting this relationship on paper, but I just I I've sometimes think of it from from her point of view, and I go, oh, that's full on. She's pretty comfortable with who she is as a person, and like to be fair to her, she is incredibly nice, responsible, 
respectable, respectful, and supportive. And so she's she knows that she does not make a lot of dick moves. Yeah. So she's pretty comfortable. She's like, put me in the comics. Like, what? Early early days, I was like, I've got to put you in my comics. What if we break up? And she's like, it's fine. Even if we do break up, I don't think I'll come out looking like a dick. I know myself well enough. So she was pretty comfortable going in the comics mm-hmm. because she knows that her behavior is not problematic. So, you know, good for her. Um, but no, we, we have a line. There's certain things that, you know, couples do in the privacy of their own homes when no one is watching that we're like, oh, that's too weird. You can't tell anyone about that. People will think we're freaks. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. You're listening to Graphic Nature and we're talking to Kale McCurst. We'll return right after this short message. Hey, thanks for listening. Hope you're enjoying the show. Uh, we are all over social media. Well, not all over it, but we've got a few. We've got Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please jump on Facebook and like us if you're enjoying the show, as well as following us on Instagram and Twitter. You can find all the details on the website, graphicnature.media. Thanks very much. This has been a Graphic Nature public service announcement. Considering the broad range of stuff that you read or have read in the past, how much of it do you think, you know, how much of the stuff you read influences your ideas about your own books? Um, I don't think a lot influences the writing because the, the writing of the comics, I just, oh, it's just, you know, this internal drive of I need to communicate with people what's going on and I don't know how else to tell mm-hmm. my feelings to people. Um, if, if I could make comics that also had a soundtrack, I would do that because then I feel like I'd give people a better understanding of what it was I was feeling. When you read this page, listen to this really melancholy song and then you'll get it. Um, I think think, uh, that has been tried many, many times. I think it's like you need the full sensory experience. It would be, it would be interesting once, once they kind of finally figure out how to do it properly. Because I think Lumberjanes they often, uh, at the end of the yeah, book, they, put they list all the songs yeah. that they were listening to while they were creating the book. Uh, there's been quite a few that, you know, uh, who was it? Oh, which book was it? Which one? Uh, Phonogram mm-hmm. uh, by Kieran Gillian and oh, I can't remember the other dude's name. But they often, the, the, the book is uh, intertwined with uh, music and yeah. um, I think the idea behind it from memory, it was quite a long, long time ago, uh, was... Uh, music was a, a kind of mu- uh, music was a kind of magic, mm. and like what they call it, they call uh, phon- phon- phonomancy or something like that. I'm, yeah. I've totally screwed that up, but um, it was an interesting concept. So, in in answer to your earlier question, I think um, I do definitely take influences from everything um, that I, I read, little bits here and there. Like I, I mean, I have a pretty established style by this point in time but I can still like when I look back through the eating disorder comic I can look back to certain pages and say like I know what I was reading that week mm-hmm. look at that like it's quite um transparent but I do try to be um quite consistent in the way I draw now the big thing like I'm learning a lesson as an artist I'm like every artist like learn this lesson and learn it like th- someone said it on a podcast recently and they were like don't draw if you can copy don't copy if you can trace like use a reference picture yeah yeah yeah. use a reference picture like i look at some of my pages and sometimes every now and then like most of the time i'm i've been drawing for long enough that i'm like "Eh, i can smash this out no dramas and i just draw from my brain and then every now and then i'm like you know what i should use a reference for this panel and then i use a reference like that is so much better than everything else i've drawn 
Why don't you use references all the time? What's wrong with me? There's nothing shameful about using references and we have the internet. We have Google image search. You can get a picture of anything. Don't force yourself to draw a car. My gosh, if you can trace a car, trace a car. No one's going to judge you for tracing a car. Cars are hard. No one wants to draw them. I think I think it's hard though because a lot of artists do feel as though I have to be able to do it to call myself an artist. Like there's some sort of shame or guilt mm. when it comes to a lot of that kind of stuff. I just think that we punish ourselves. And something I heard someone say recently when they say, you know, what what it's artists you know advice for young artists and they're like just simplify because you follow anyone's artistic work and it's always more complicated at the start than it is at the end because as you go you learn how best to communicate your message Mm. with less work and that's something that I certainly learned the longer I've done it is like you don't have to draw your absolute masterpiece on every page you just have to get your point across so draw it good enough to tell your story absolutely and don't labor over one panel for two hours because people I love comics so much but they absolutely will destroy you because you will spend hours on a page and people will read it in 10 seconds (laughs) So, like, don't torture yourself. Acknowledge that it's a fast-moving story and if you can get away with less work to still tell your story, do it. Isn't that the real point, though? It's, it's basically a storytelling yeah. uh, medium and particularly from the arts perspective, you really that's – you, that's your job is to convey the message mm. or the, the, convey the story. So it doesn't really matter uh, what or how much uh, detail, how much detail you put in your art. Uh, as long as the story is is um, conveyed, it's yeah. much like uh, reading reading a, a page of prose, and then or you know or listening to a politician speak is a better example. Yeah, listen to a politician speak, and then listen to someone off the street speak about the same mm. subject, and you'll get the person on the street. Not only is it simplified, it's easy to understand, meaning that everybody will understand what they're saying, and there's no there's no extraneous words in there. Mm. Even though I used one right then. It's just it's just a better message. I mean, we have uh, ideas about having efficiency of language, but you can also have efficiency of drawings. Like mm. when I first started, I'd be like, "Well, this person's standing in front of a brick wall. Guess I got to draw a fuck lot of bricks." No, you don't. You can draw six bricks, and people will get that it's a brick wall. <laughs> Do not have to draw every brick in the wall. Like if you're drawing a tree, you'd be like, I guess I gotta draw a lot of leaves. No, you don't. You can draw a dozen leaves and people will get that's a tree. And they will not spend any longer on that drawing before moving on. You don't have to draw every leaf. M- mind you, and, and I agree with you one hundred percent, but there are times where I've flipped through comics and and the artist has done something so spectacular. Oh, and you just you and so like I good. mean, as a as a as a lifelong reader of comics, when I see a book like that I think half the time I'm not even reading it properly because I'm looking at it and I'm like, oh, holy shit, look at that. Oh, my God. And there's even the tyre from the car in the background <laughs> that looks like it's 10 kilometres away. You know, I can see the studs in the we- in the side of the, we- you know, things like that are still remarkable. And it it's, doesn't happen often. It's beautiful to see when people have put that amount of detail into their drawings. I think you can really enjoy it. And, like, I think we all enjoy a really beautifully drawn comic book. I think I look at it differently now because I think of how much work is involved. Like if there's one person writing and one person drawing and like the writer has set a scene inside like 
a club, I'm like, oh, you hate your artist. That's so mean. Because every scene is a crowd scene and every artist will tell you crowd scenes are the worst. It just, no one wants to do that. And so I have so much respect for an artist. It's like, wow, you really did just do 40 pages inside a club. That is some real respect. You've done your paces. There is though, there is a few that would tackle that and do a really, really good, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, all you really need, particularly when we're talking background images, you know, a nightclub is dark. So you can probably get away with a lot of silhouettes <laughs> in the background. You've only got a couple of the couple of the, the main characters up in the foreground and then everything is kind of just shades in the back. You can you know, there are ways to get around it. You know, I reckon I reckon if you if you laid it out, you could do a club scene, you know, eight pages and <laughs> and you know, and you can get away with it. It was the it's the same thing. I remember reading uh, I think it was an interview or or I saw it online and they were talking about a similar thing. As uh, so they were talking yeah. to an artist. And um, they were saying how the evolution of an artist, as much much like yourself, you start off drawing and uh, you know you're drawing a, a fight, right? Yeah. Let's say for instance, you can sit there draw the folds, the fingers, you can do the whole thing, or you can draw two two sticks with a round like a round kind of squarish thing, put a couple of lines in it, still conveys the same message. Mm. Yeah, right. You know he's trying to knock somebody out. <laughs> you know, and you can do the same thing with a club club scene. Just yeah. a couple, yeah. of, couple of shades in the background. I think, uh, you know, I've learned some things by this point in terms of like the shortcuts that you can take. Mm-hmm. So I definitely take shortcuts and then I save my energy. So if I've got a scene, you know, a page and the first scene is a crowd scene set amongst a forest and then the next scene is a close-up of someone's face and the next scene is a silhouette. Like I will, I'll take as many shortcuts as I can so I can put the work into the good panel. So the crowd scene will like, ugh, just do as much as I, as little as I can to convey a crowd amongst trees. And then the last page I'll be like, can I tell this was a silhouette? Yes, I can make it a silhouette. And then this page, this panel in the centre, I'll be like, right, this is your time to shine. Put the work in. Make it really good. Put in all the details. Put in all those individual hairs and eyelashes. Make it nice because then it's a nice contrast. But, you know, I've also, by, you know, learning to tell the story with less detail, I've also cut down my production process Mm -hmm. quite significantly. When I started, it was taking me about five hours to make a page. Now I can punch one out in under two hours. Wow. um, From pencils to inks Mm -hmm. so it's yeah it's it's gotten much faster which is great because it means that it's much easier for me to fit more comics content into my week i can't remember if you said are you planning now yeah so i'm still writing comics so i'm working on a new comic at the moment Mm -hmm. uh it's called triggered a story of ptsd a plebiscite and the patriarchy um yeah it's some pretty heavy (laughs) heavy stuff because you know what after i it's when I was writing the eating disorder comic and then I started writing other kinds of comics, um, you know, someone asked me very early on, is, is there anything that you wouldn't write comics about from your own life? Is there anything from your own life that you'd be like, nah, not a chance? And one thing that I said very early on was I will never write comics about sexual violence because yeah. it's terrifying and I can't do it and it just it destroys me to think about it. And then after I finished writing the eating disorder comic, which was terrifying to write, and every time I posted a page, I was so scared. And so many people wrote to me and said, oh, my gosh, thank you for telling this story because it makes me feel less alone. And then I looked at, you know, I, I got diagnosed with PTSD and was facing a whole bunch of therapy to try and work through my history. And then I was like, you know what? art therapies worked for me in the past and I'm terrified to write a story about my history of sexual violence 
but art therapy's worked for me for the eating disorder stuff and I'm recovered from my eating disorder now. Maybe art therapy about this can also help me with this journey of healing. And I know that a lot of women have been through this kind of stuff mm. and not just women as well, but non-binary people, people of masculine of centre, a lot of people have been through this stuff. And if it feels this important and terrifying to me it's going to feel even more terrifying to someone else and that's why it's important to tell this story so absolutely terrified as as i'm telling it because i'm telling you know secrets that i've carried around with me for my whole life but something that my therapist sort of uh said to me very early on was these stories hold a lot of power for you because they are secrets and you refuse to tell anyone about them and therefore they feel horrible But if you let them see the light of day and if you start talking about them, you know, in a safe circle at first, but then the broader you can, the better. If you start talking about them, every time you tell it, it takes the power out of it and you own it a little bit more. And so I've been telling my stories and it's it sounds awful. It's not pleasant to talk about. And some people respond with, let's talk about something nice. This is not very nice. But it takes the power out of it and it makes me feel more in control and more empowered over my history so that I don't feel a victim of it anymore I'm like that's something that happened I survived I got through it and sharing it with other people gives other people a chance to find their own voice and their own healing as well Mm. and that's that's essentially what good storytelling does when you're telling stories about something like mental health I think it's important to show the hard work side of it as well like a lot of people have got mental health complaints it's pretty common but when you have a diagnosis of a mental illness, like a big part of your life is going to the therapist, going to the GP, going to the psychiatrist, taking your meds, doing your art journal, you know, that boring work that you are doing over and over again, week after week, that makes up a big piece of your picture in terms of getting well and functioning as a human being. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to show that as well, because I also, I want to normalize it. You know, mental illness is a real thing that affects a great deal of people And in telling my story, I'm like, hey, you know what? I have a mental illness and these are all the many things that I have to do to be a functional adult because something is different in my brain because I have a genetic predisposition. So I think by showing all of that work, it hopefully will reduce some of the stigma that other people feel because, gosh, it's it's okay to go to therapy. It's okay to see a doctor. It's okay to take medication if that's something that you need. Mm. Like, If you get a headache, you take Panadol, right? Yeah, yeah. Like I, when I... I've had people shade me for being someone who takes medication for my mental illness because I take a couple of different medications and I've had people shame me for that and they point specifically to what about when you couldn't draw anymore because of your pills? Why why would you still take your pills after that? The reality for me is because I'm on medications, I'm a functional human being. Like my life before I was in treatment was so miserable and I, I cycled through my day. I would go to my job. And then I would go in, see a client, come back out to my car, break down in tears, cry for about 15 minutes, then like put myself back together, reapply my makeup, go to the next client, go in and see them. And I'd be crying like a dozen times a day Mm. and just big, big sobbing tears because I was so anxious. I was always, I had chest pains. I was always anxious. I was always doom and gloom and just terrified. And now that I am in treatment and I also take medication, 
I'm a functional human being. Like most days I feel pretty good. I didn't know that you could have a day where you mostly feel good. I'd never experienced that before. And then now I get to feel mostly good all the time. I get to smile every day. I get to laugh every day. I never thought I could have that. And I wouldn't be there if it wasn't for medication. So yeah, for some people, medication is not part of their story, but if it's part of your story, that's okay. You're yeah. a, my brain doesn't produce chemicals in the same levels that other people's brains do. And it takes a medication to rectify that. And there's no shame in that. Like you said, you take Panadol for a headache. Yeah. You take insulin you've got for diabetes, diabetes. Diabetes, yeah, you take insulin. I have a deficiency in certain brain chemicals. And so I take medication that helps to set things right. I, I find it interesting to get better. You need to do all the yeah. work. And I suppose at the end of the day that for me, I'd see the parallel between uh, drawing drawing comics or getting into comics and not really kind of knowing what you're doing and then by the end of it the more time you spend you get better and better at it i suppose it's much like anything the more investment that you put in the better you get yeah i've put <laughs> put a lot of work into recovery look one of my i i unfortunately it's so sad because i'm like what is my life worth <laughs> the biggest thing that i've done to date is to recover from an eating disorder and like but that's a big <laughs> thing <laughs> actually really hard eating disorders have got the highest mortality of any mental illness and I almost died from it I really did when I was diagnosed my doctor did a bunch of blood work on me and was like okay so your kidneys and your liver have pretty much packed it in your heart's starting to experience heart failure and uh, we think you've got a brain tumor and I was like okay all right fair enough so I went in got a bunch of imaging done and then I came back and she's like, good news, you don't have a brain tumor. And I was like, oh, well, I'm out of the woods. And she's like, no, the fact that your that your hormone levels are at this level and your liver and your kidneys are doing this and your heart is doing this, basically your body is preparing you to die. If you don't get weight restored really quickly, you are going to die in the next couple of months. And I was like, that's crazy. And she's like, I'm telling you, you, you need to do something right now because your body is dying. And I went home and I told my girlfriend and she was beside herself. She was so upset and I wasn't taking it seriously. I was like, I know I'm not really dying, but I I really was. And I've gotten to the point now where, I mean, I've had to literally double my body weight to get weight restored, but I am healthy now and my body is so functional. I can eat, I can sleep, I can run without passing out. Oh my gosh. Did you know it's possible to run without passing out? No, actually. Amazing. (laughs) And... You know, so I wish I'd done something more impressive in my life, but that's the biggest thing that I've achieved so far. I think that's like, pretty impressive. Didn't die. <laughs> Isn't, but that's, that's a great thing. Like that's, that's a commendable thing to come back from where you were to now not only helping other people by what you're doing, but continually upholding all the work that you put in to yourself, which a lot of people don't do. Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of people are on this journey i just i I just wish we could all talk more openly about it because it's a such a big part of people's lives and like i'm not out about my mental health at my day job of course because i have a professional job that requires a certain amount of appearances um and i i don't want to jeopardize my my day job so you know i have to be in the closet about my mental illness at work Mm -hmm. Um, and i think that's a lot of people's story as well and i wish it wasn't and i think we're getting better but unfortunately, it still is because people stigmatise mental illness. Yeah, well, they very much do, and and particularly in business. Mm. Yeah, that's that's a real shame. Do you when when you're when you're putting your books together, 
Are you working digitally or do you still do pen and paper? I still love pen and paper. I, I love getting out a bit of Bristol paper and, and doing it on paper. And I find that that's where I feel the most comfortable. But I did get a Surface Pro a couple of years ago mm-hmm. just to see if I could speed things up a bit. And the Surface Pro, it's it's not my preferred medium, but it enables me to punch out gag comics real quick. I can yeah. do something real fast on the Surface Pro and then... There's no scanning, there's no editing, it's just right there ready to go, ready to upload. So I use that for a lot of my shorter comics, but for my longer comics where I really want to put the time and effort in, I still do it on paper. I just I love the feel of paper, I'm old-fashioned, even though it's more work, I love it. Yeah, it's always interesting talking to people about that because a lot of the times, you know, I've even thought if someone says, oh, no, I'm paper all the way, pen and paper, <laughs> and I just kind of go, yeah, but the stuff that you do, can you could have the time yeah if you did it digitally uh on the other hand i look at it and i go but then you don't have the original work yeah which is always yeah. a shame I, I you know i look at it and i go oh digital's it's it's great it's the way of the future blah 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 but then you don't get to see the original work with mistakes and fixes and stuff like that, which i find i still to this day find fascinating and and so like there's so much more in there rather mm-hmm. than Someone just whacking it out on the on the PC or I, on, on the Mac. I find it's better for my posture to be working on paper because when I draw on the Surface Pro, I just sort of curl myself up in any corner that I can fit <laughs> in because yeah, it's right. so little. Whereas when I'm drawing on paper, I go to my studio and I sit at my drawing desk and I'm looking out the window and drawing at the same time. And it's it's almost a mindfulness thing. Like I know when I go into my studio, I'm like, right, it's business time. Now I'm going to sit down and do some drawing. Whereas the Surface Pro, I'm like, I'll take it with me when I travel and I can squeeze in half an hour of drawing here yeah, or there. Right. So it's a very convenient tool and I love it. Um, I wouldn't go without it. But uh, there's something very almost meditative about going into the studio and sitting down at your drawing desk and you're like, right, here we go. Right. It really is. I, I, I've uh, Whenever I've entertained... Uh, you know, becoming a comic book artist. Uh, <laughs> there have been many times where I've sat at the desk uh, on the drawing table and hours, I mean hours go by and it's all of a sudden it's getting dark. It's like, you know, holy mm. shit, I started at 11.30. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what's going on? When it's it's Get into it, the zone. Yeah, it really is. Uh, mm. uh, and I mean, I, I'd imagine that most people find it meditative. It always strikes me as, as something quite quite remarkable and, and mindful Mindfulness, the way you, you described it earlier, is, is pretty much kind of uh, a great way to put it. Almost like your brain is exercising something yeah. by virtue of, you know, keeping your eye on that line and, and continually moving and, and shifting and changing in all manner of shapes. But, but at the same time, you know, you, you, something's happening up there. Yeah, and whether, yeah. it's, whether it's endorphins just going, hey, man, this is awesome. <laughs> Keep doing it. Just keep doing it. You, you know, know you're onto something good when you can, like you said, you end up sitting there for hours and hours and it starts getting dark and you're like, oh, it's, oh my gosh, I've been in here for 12 hours. This is fantastic. And it just, and also it's deeply satisfying. You sit down at the end of the day and you get your little stack of pages and you're like, yeah. Well, maybe, maybe for you with your stack of pages, but I'm, <laughs> I'm typically always on the same page, you know, <laughs> 12 hours later. Uh, but we, we won't get into that. Very early on, you mentioned most people have sent through, you know, encouraging words and, and, and words of support. Have you received criticism? I've been very fortunate in that the little corner of the internet that I occupy, people seem to be quite supportive. And I think I have 
been very lucky that I haven't received a great deal of hate mail. I've received, I, I certainly have received hate mail. Most of it, I'd say 99% of it is in the same vein, right. which is once I came out in my comics, I would got written to by people saying, the reason that you're sad and you cut yourself is because oh, you're gay. Geez. If you weren't gay, you wouldn't be depressed. And really? I was like, it's funny because I've gotten happier since I came out. <laughs> Amazing. And they're like, no, it's because you're gay. That's why you have a mental illness. I'm like, okay, thanks. Uh, not helpful. So I file those away as to not be acknowledged. I did make a very big mistake very early on when I was very new to posting stuff on the internet. And I had like a tiny little community of people that followed my comics. And on the very first page of my comic, I, I posted that original first page without a lot of commentary initially and I didn't think to look back on the words that I had written and how they fit into my attitude of eating disorders now. So when I wrote that very first page, I, right at the top I said, I do not have an eating disorder. Number one, I can't have an eating disorder because eating disorders are for insecure, vain teenage girls, which is a very incredibly ignorant thing to say. But... That when I was first diagnosed, that is literally all I knew about eating disorders. Mm -hmm. Eating disorders are for teenage girls. And I didn't know anything about eating disorders. Yeah. I had no history of eating disorders and I had no background into eating disorders. And I went on to say on that page, I said, I don't have an eating disorder because I am an adult woman. I'm not a teenager. And also I am a career woman. And also I'm a feminist. And therefore I can't possibly have an eating disorder. And it was just the most ignorant thing to say to say that this is this is who is affected by eating disorders and that it, to imply that somehow eating disorders are a moral failing when they absolutely are not. They're a mental yeah. illness and they can affect anyone. So I posted this page without a lot of commentary. I, of course, very quickly went back and posted a long piece of commentary underneath it saying, hey, guys, even though there's like a really ignorant statement in this first page, I know a lot more about eating disorders now and I know that's not true and I know that's not not what eating disorders are and I know that it has nothing to do with being teenager or insecure or whatever but very early on when I was only sort of about 50 pages in someone wrote to me and they said how dare you write that about people with eating disorders how dare you say that they're all vain insecure teenage girls what a horrible thing to say and I was so young in my journey on the internet that I posted a, a response to that comic that comment publicly mm -hmm. and I said I really think if you read the rest of the comic you'll find that actually that's not my view and the rest of the comic tells a, a story of a journey and I've come on a long journey with my understanding of eating disorders and I just think you should read the rest of the comic before you make that judgment and I didn't give it a lot of thought but I posted it publicly which was a huge mistake because I had followers at that point in yeah, time yep. and then I had a bunch of followers come to my aid and say oh no you're no you would never say something bad you're so how dare that person say that to you yeah. which I, I you know what a learning and I immediately took the comic down I was like oh my gosh I didn't mean to like sick a little group of people on this person for saying something quite honest yeah. because they felt personally attacked by something that I'd said which was a genuine complaint and so I immediately took it down I was like what have I done I've you know I've opened up the this poor person to criticism when they're making a genuine criticism of something that I've something hurtful that I've said in yeah. my comic page and so I very quickly took it down but oh I learned that lesson I was like okay, just do not respond to criticism publicly because number one, you don't know where someone's coming from. And number two, like 
if they've made a personal comment to you, maybe talk to them about it. You don't need to like mm. open it up to the whole internet for everyone to criticize <laughs> them. Yeah. So from then on, all of my hate mail, even if it's just someone saying, hey, if you weren't gay, you wouldn't be sad. I don't post it publicly. I'm like, you know what? Okay. Yeah. So that was, oh, I think that's my biggest learning on the power of the internet. Don't you think that at some point, much like you've, you've instructed them, that that is indeed the first page of mm. the comic and for them to kind of go, well, how dare you without the context of what you're saying? But I mean, I think it's a little bit, it's a little bit well, preemptive. I mean, you've also got to, as someone who is navigating the internet, the internet can be a wonderful but big, scary place. As someone who's navigating the internet, you know, you have to take responsibility for keeping yourself safe. <laughs> and maybe this person read that very first page and they were deeply hurt by what happened. You know, if you're deeply hurt by something like that, your instinct is not going to be to go and read the rest of it in the hope that it redeems itself. Yeah, you're going to be right, like, yeah. you know what? I'm, this sounds hurtful and I've got to protect myself from this hurt. And I think it's important for me to let this person know that this page is hurtful. Mm -hmm. And I can understand why if, if, you know, if they were so affected by those words that they didn't go on and read it because, you know, if you're looking after yourself, you can't take the risk. You know, maybe someone posts a long, horrible, homophobic rant and you're like, you know what, maybe if I read the other 200 pages of their blog, there might be some diamonds in here that, <laughs> maybe. that actually they're a good person. Yeah, They've got yeah. a heart of gold. Yeah. But so I, I understand their actions, but I just I deeply regret the way I responded to that one person, and it was a big lesson to learn. Does that now inform the your at the work that you do? So not necessarily where you're posting, but more so like you know how you would now how you would put together a comic. So even even though let's say for instance that's the first page, right? And you're it's it's a it was a piece done at a time period where you mm. were, let's say, for instance, for lack of a better word, ignorant about certain things. Yeah. Right. So you're actually reflecting reality in that book or yeah. in, in that page. Yeah. So now, after all of that chicanery that's happened, does that now inform the way you do it when, yeah. you're, when you're hitting upon? Absolutely. So particularly for the new comic that I'm writing, I'm very wary now of how I portray things because this new comic, Triggered, has got – it goes over past trauma that involves sexual violence. And I have to find a way in those stories. I haven't gotten up to the point in the story where I'm drawing any of those traumas. There's going to be people that read it that have had similar experiences. And I need to be able to get my point across about what happened in a way that is not unnecessarily upsetting or triggering to people who also have PTSD or have also experienced sexual violence. So I'm I'm trying to navigate that at the moment. Mm -hmm. How can I get my point across? How can I tell this story in a way that is not unnecessarily upsetting for someone who's had similar experiences? Because I think it's an important story to tell, but yeah. it if it if if it's graphic, it's just gonna hurt people. It's and it's not worth doing that. So I'm trying to and that's that's what I'm finding the most difficult right now is navigating my way around how do you tell the story of trauma without creating a, a work that is nothing but triggers for people who have similar traumas. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, good luck. Mm, yeah. Yeah, Jesus. I'm I'm figuring it out. Well, uh, I think on, on that note we will uh we'll wrap and uh, we'll Great. let you get back to trying to figure out how you're gonna <laughs> how you're gonna draw all that. Uh, Kale McCurse, thank you very much for coming thank to the so show. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the chat. You're very welcome. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks, Kale.
And that's the end of this episode of Graphic Nature, the podcast. Thanks for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it. Please rate and review the show on whatever podcast service you use. It'll be uh, greatly appreciated. If you have any thoughts regarding the show, feel free to send an email to feedback at graphicnature.media. You can also catch the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. For more information about the show, you can also visit Graphic Nature on the web by typing into your handy web browser or search engine, graphicnature.media. Thanks again for listening, and uh, you'll hear more from us in a couple of weeks. Thanks a lot. Bye. Credits! Written, produced, edited, and presented by Zoran Ilyevsky. Audio consultation and additional production. Archie Cuthbertson, Dan Moore. Credits announcer, Simon Winkler. Theme character voices, Zoran Ilyevsky. Audio excerpts of Senate Subcommittee on Juvenile Delinquency, Wortham versus Gaines on Decency Standards, used courtesy of New York City Municipal Archives. You've been listening to Graphic Nature, the podcast.